Well, thank you, Pauline. I think you more than did justice to that particular passage, and uh, it was very helpful just to read it. It's an incredible part of God's Word as we reflect on who Jesus is uh, and who God is. Friends, let me just add my welcome to Josh's. It is so good to see everyone, and uh, if you're back for the first time, then it's great to have you back. Uh, really looking forward to the year together. I hope, I know it's been a bit of a crazy uh, Christmas, January period. Many of you have uh, been impacted by the realities of life. Uh, but I hope you've had some time to rest and refresh, and I hope that you uh, come to church uh, expectant that God will do great things amongst us and great things in your life this year as you put your hope and trust in him. Well, um, I, would, I will add to what Josh said in his family news and the announcements that one of the other ways you can get the daily Bible readings is on your church app. So if you've got the church app and you're just on a bus to work or whatever, you can just look it up on your church app. That's another great way to do it. It's one of, one of the ways I use it. Uh, regularly. So that's also a third way that you can get hold of that. Let's pray together as we uh, look at God's word here in Revelation 4 and 5 this morning. Our Heavenly Father, you are a great and awesome God beyond our capacity to get our heads around. Uh, it is bizarre that we turn our backs on you, that so often within our world we pay you such little attention. But Father, you are our creator and you are our redeemer. And we'll see that today in this passage of scripture. And so help us to reflect on what that means for life each and every day. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, can I say it's actually hard to believe that the event on the screen is now almost 13 years ago. Uh, at the time, you probably remember our world experienced uh, an enormous uh, perhaps unparalleled gathering of people, primarily from one nation, but with many, many nations represented and with millions of others uh, watching via modern technology. And they gathered to express their worship-like adoration and hopes in one man. Uh, I'm sure you're quite aware that's Barack Obama. Uh, but not just Americans, many people among the nations expressed on that day their hopes in this man to save them, to bring fresh hope to our world, to make peace where there was war, to turn the world around. Obama's inauguration was a, a moving and penetrating moment of great expectation, almost worshipful. But they were, uh, I guess, expectations far too great of a man, even with the extraordinary qualities of a man like President Obama. And it was the passage of scripture that we're looking at today that brought the euphoria, if you like, of Barack Obama's inauguration to mind. There is just so much grandeur in Revelation chapters 4 and 5. We don't have the uh, enormous benefit of television cameras to capture the moment, but the word pictures are extremely graphic and they paint an extraordinary scene for us. Beyond our imagination's ability to properly grasp, I think. Uh, one, one commentator says that uh, Revelation 4 is to Revelation 5 what a setting is to a drama. And so let's just take a moment to look at chapter 4 very briefly to set the scene here. Uh, the Apostle John has been transported in, in, in a vision into the throne room of heaven itself. Uh, forgive me if I don't explain every detail of the text here. That's not the purpose of today. But I just want us to get a sense of the occasion, of the grandeur, of the setting here. As John looks into heaven, he sees a throne with, 
some, someone sitting on the throne whom he describes as having the appearance of precious stones. Uh, this throne is a, a symbol of absolute authority exercised by the one who's sitting on it. There's thunder and, and lightning coming from this throne which is framed by an emerald rainbow. And around this throne are, are 24 other thrones with 24 elders sitting on them, all wearing golden crowns. Here is the uh, inner council of God himself. And then closer still to the throne is what John describes as four living creatures, each with six wings, like the angels we see described earlier in the Bible in Isaiah chapter 6, and here each with different faces, a lion, an ox, a man, an eagle. These are, if you like, the highest uh, angelic beings leading the worship of God. And so whenever they give glory to God, the 24 elders fall down before God and listen to the song that is sung of God in heaven itself. So Revelation 4, verse 11, right where Pauline started. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. See, here is the only one who holds our world together, who created all things. Here, here is the only one with ultimate authority. Here is the only one who is worthy of our worship. Here is the setting in which the drama of chapter 5 unfolds. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Now at the centre of this drama is a scroll uh, and a universal search is on for someone who is going to be worthy to open it. Now, this scroll held in the right hand of the, the one who sits on the throne is a document of unparalleled significance. Now, the rest of the book of Revelation actually bears that out, even if we don't get the whole picture here in chapter 5. It contains the full account of what God has determined as the destiny of the world. Now, normally a scroll would uh, only be written on one side, but the imagery of this scroll written on both sides actually points to the comprehensive nature of God's plans and purposes, his judgments and blessings for the whole world. Now, the, the tension in the drama here is that the scroll is sealed and the purposes of God can't be known or enacted unless someone is found who is actually worthy to open it. Now, notice the call here is for someone who is worthy not someone who is powerful or impressive, but worthy to perform this supreme service. Now, clearly, not, not even those seated around God's throne are considered to have uh, the attributes and capacities that would make them worthy to open it. And so the call goes out, a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And it's, a, it's a loud voice because that's what's needed because it's a call that goes to the far reaches of the cosmos, to all heaven and earth and under the earth. Who can open the scroll? Who is worthy? No one is worthy. Verse 3, 
And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. John weeps because he knows the mess the world is in. Who is going to bring God's righteous judgment to our world and sort it out? Well, not Barack Obama. Now listen to how Don Carson explains John's weeping here. I think it's up on the screen there for you. He says his tears stem from his awareness that in the symbolism of this vision, God's purposes will never be carried out. There will be no justice in the universe and no salvation. This is the despair of concluding that history is meaningless, that God is dead. No one could open the scroll because no one is worthy. And yet, someone is worthy. See verse 5? And then one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. You know, one of the elders taps John on the shoulder and says, Stop crying. There actually is one who is worthy. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, that, t- that title will mean nothing to you if you don't know the Old Testament of the Bible, but it actually resonates with meaning if you do, as does calling him the root of David. Now, Judah, you might remember, was one of the 12 tribes that constituted Israel. Uh, in Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, in chapter 49, verse 9, Judah is described as a lion's cub. It is the tribe from which Israel's greatest king descended, King David. And then in Isaiah, the prophet, again, chapter 11, uh, the prophet speaks of one who would be raised up from the root of David to save. So this line is the, the great king of the Davidic line, which is a way of speaking of the Messiah, of the saviour that God himself promised would come. This great lion has conquered. Now the word actually suggests a great struggle of some sort, but he has triumphed. And because of it, this great lion is considered worthy to open the scroll. But in another twist, as John looks to see this great sight, what does he actually see? Well, as we've seen in the kids' talk already, he sees not a lion, but a lamb, looking as though it had been slain. Look at verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Now, as strange as it may at first seem, this is not a separate creature. This great lion is at the same time a gentle lamb that has been slaughtered though he's no longer dead. Again, we need to see these images through our Old Testament lenses. Uh, This image uh, is drawn from the sacrificial lamb of the Passover, back to the kids' talk, uh, that was slaughtered to save God's people. But this is a lion-like lamb. Uh, The number seven is a symbol of perfection in Revelation. And, And so seven horns and seven eyes speak of his perfect power and wisdom. And so it's this worthy lamb who is able to approach the throne and take the scroll. 
What happens next, though, is something that I think I understand. Some time ago, um, now the ABC radio presenter, James Valentine, you might have heard his name, but he was especially asking kids, uh, before they went back to school, to phone in and to tell him what are the things that their parents do that they find most annoying. Matt, that's myriad, isn't it? Um, but I was listening at the time, it is some time ago, uh, one of the kids rang in, uh, a particular kid, I don't know who it was, and they complained that whenever they asked their parents for something, whenever they were telling them something or asking a question, their parent would often respond by singing. I'm sure no one does that here, but... But they, they'd either sing a song that they knew, so for example, a child might kind of ask to hold their parent's hand, and they would start singing, I want to hold your hand. I'm not going to keep going, but I'm just saying you get the idea, right? Um, or perhaps they'd make up a song on the spot uh, that had to do with the subject. It was, a bit of, it was actually a little bit of a troubling phone conversation because it was, has often been one of my own tendencies that if I think back to when my children were young, uh, I'd often make up ridiculous songs when they were trying to get a straight answer from me. And so I would make up a song, it would frustrate them, and it would cause me delight. Now here, though, when the living creatures and the elders see the worthy lamb take the scroll, they break out into a new song, fortunately much more meaningful than mine. Uh, let me just pick it up there from verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Verse 9, and they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. See, notice here that this is a new song. It's not that they somehow got bored of the old song, but when a, a new song erupts in heaven, it normally refers to something new that God is doing. We see it, for example, in Psalm 96. But what is new about this song? Now, notice in chapter 4 that it was God who was worthy. But in chapter 5, it's Jesus, the Lamb, who is worthy. And did you see why God and Jesus are worthy? In chapter 4, verse 11, notice, God is worthy because he created all things. He is our creator. But the new song in chapter 5 tells us that Jesus is worthy because of the salvation, the ransom, the redemption that he brings. This song makes it very clear what makes this lion-like lamb worthy. Now notice the clauses that shape this song. You are worthy. You were slain. You ransomed. You have made. You are worthy, they sing. Why? Because you were slain. He is worthy precisely because he was slain. It is actually through his death that Jesus conquered. That is how he has conquered. And by using the word slain, it's actually highlighting the fact that he didn't simply die. He was killed. It has the overtones of a violent slaughter. In one brilliant stroke, John portrays the central theme of the Bible, victory through sacrifice. The blood of the lamb was spilt. That's the sacrifice. 
but it was spilt for a purpose, to ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. See, that is the great victory. That's the victory of the cross where Jesus, the Lamb of God, was slain for the sins of the whole world. Satan's captives and God's enemies, that's all of us, have been ransomed. We've been purchased with the blood of Jesus for God. See, here is the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, not just for Westerners, but for people from every nation, every tongue. The church should never be divided by national or political or cultural or racial boundaries. How true is that in our congregations? Furthermore, those who have been ransomed by the Lamb's violent death have been made a kingdom and priests to our God. That is, all of us are priests. Sometimes people call me a priest. But you're just as much a priest as I am. It's not a specially confined group of people. All Christians are a kingdom of priests. That's what we have been made. All of us are are equipped to serve him. All of us are called to testify to his greatness. We've been rescued from Satan to God and transformed from sinners to priests. That's what the death of Jesus has done for us. So he's the only one who is truly worthy to open the scroll. No one else is able because no one else is worthy. No one else has paid the price for sin. No one else could pay the price for sin. However, the worthiness of the lamb at this point goes even further. Have a look from verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. At the end of chapter 4, it was God alone who was worthy of being worshipped. But at the end of chapter 5, they fall down and worship the Lamb. Chapter 4 is consistent with the whole Bible's view that God is the only being in all the universe who is worthy of our worship. To worship any other is blasphemy. And so to worship the lamb as the elders and the four living creatures and the myriad of angels do here would be blasphemy unless, of course, Jesus is God himself. See, this is one of the clearest passages in the Bible that speaks of the divinity of Jesus, the man who is God. He's the only one who can bring God's purposes for the world to fruition. He's the only one who can... Save us from judgment. If it wasn't for him, we wouldn't be free from our sins. Is there any wonder that the entire universe explodes with a new song of praise and adoration to Jesus? The Lamb of Revelation is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And this is a passage that tells us how worthy Jesus is. It's this act of Jesus that has changed the song of heaven. That is what Jesus did 
changed eternity. And it shows us that there's no other way to be established as God's people but by the blood of Jesus. Some of you will know that we have a little slogan at Wild Street that says, real with God, real with each other, and real with the world. And there's a good reason why it's in that particular order. And just like Barack Obama had when he was inaugurated, we at Wild Street and St Matthews, we have high hopes. For us, our hopes are of seeing many people in our community come to know the salvation that Jesus brings. This is worth reflecting on. See, up until now, chapter 5, verse 9, the thing at the very centre that causes all heaven to sing is what God created. But after chapter 5, verse 9, what takes centre stage is redemption or salvation by the blood of Jesus. Everything was creation-centred, but now it's cross-centred. At the centre of all eternity is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's not, however, what our world looks like, is it? Our world today is very much creation-centred, even if they deny creation. This world is what people live for. It's what dominates their horizons and shapes their daily behaviour. And so there's a warning here, isn't there, for the church in Australia today. Often our churches are too creation-centred. Too often they think and act and look too much like our creation-centred world. But now as, as Christians, I'm actually supposed to see the universe as cross-centred. We can't actually be consumed by this world and just add Jesus into it. Creation-centred Christianity keeps living for this world, whereas creation, as glorious as it is, is just the place where we live out our cross-centred lives. And what that means is that we're to live for the church that Jesus is building, the people that he is gathering to himself through his death. And we're to live for the gospel cause, the making and growing of disciples of Jesus who know he died to save them. It means we invest our time for the gospel cause. It means we invest our money for the gospel cause. It means we invest ourselves in the gospel cause. The gospel is just the good news about Jesus and what he's done for us. We make church and growth groups the non-negotiable markers in our week. We don't just read our Bibles and say our prayers. We want God's word to dwell richly in us, to change us and shape us. We pray the Lord's Prayer because we want his kingdom to come. We may need to be shaken free from a creation-centred lifestyle. Maybe that's a, a career-centred lifestyle or a sports-centred lifestyle, a family-centred lifestyle, a comfort-centred lifestyle, wealth-centred, material-centred, self-centred. We need to help and to encourage each other to keep breaking free from creation-centred thinking and living. And so it's right, isn't it? It is right to have plans for our ministry together, to care for each other, to reach out to more people. But if we're to think that it's actually all about our plans and our visions, strategies, then we would be wrong. 
And sure, we want to encourage each other to be fully devoted disciples of Jesus. And sure, we want to see people become Christians and see our church grow. We want all those things, rightly so. But if that's what we think it's all about, then we have put the kind of proverbial cart before the horse, so to speak. The one main thing that ought to matter to every single one of us is to worship the only one who is worthy of all praise and honour and glory. And when I was, uh, I was just starting out in ministry, um, I was enthusiastic to do the work of gospel ministry. I couldn't think of anything else I wanted to do. I still can't. And so as we come together today to launch our year of ministry together, uh, what should I say to all of us? Is this a chance to kind of really rev us up? Let's spur us on for great gospel work together. This year in 2022, it's going to be a great year. Well, that's one option. But there's actually something far more important, I think, in this passage today. And Revelation 5, I think, makes things very clear. That is that Jesus alone is worthy. It reminds me, if you like, of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians when he said to the church there in, in Corinth, I resolve to know nothing among you but Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so I want to remind us, not that our church is worthy, or our mission, or our strategy, or our plans, whatever it is, but that Jesus Christ, the one who was slain, he alone is worthy of all blessing and honour and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he died in our place, that he is our saviour, and that he has made us a kingdom and priests to serve you in humility and thankfulness all our days. Amen.